This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Morning, everybody. I apologize in advance. I'm dealing with a little sinus thing, so if I become unintelligible, at least the words are printed here for you. <laughs> but anyway, some words of integration and guidance from Thomas More. I often hear religious faith described as a kind of certainty, and indeed many religious people who believe themselves to be full of faith sound too certain. What they call faith looks like its opposite. Like those who whistle in the dark, some seem to parade their beliefs precisely so they don't have to face the anxiety of not knowing the answers to the basic issues in life. Being brutally honest with ourselves, we go through the core of existential anxiety and find faith on the other side. Faith is not hiding from reality, but rather confronting it so boldly and cleanly that the anxiety bursts into a calming surrender. We find ourselves in a life that doesn't have an owner's manual, with people who believe all kinds of things, in a dangerous world that threatens at every turn. It makes sense to be anxious to a degree, and yet people who flaunt their faith appear either not to experience this anxiety or camouflage it with an overlay of bravado. I think churches would transform overnight if they gave up false assurance and faced the difficult questions of meaning and values with absolute honesty. Faith requires a strong trust in self and life, even in the face of evidence to the contrary. Like belief, it consists more in love than knowledge, or perhaps it is just that love takes precedence. It is intuitive. It is a power of the soul, not of the mind alone, and is based on the most subtle of perceptions. It is born and nurtured in the area of the open heart, the sensitivity of an ear tuned to mystery. Now some words of scripture from Genesis 12, 1 to 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your people and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Holy Gospel according to John chapter 3, 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anew. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, 
We speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. The story is told of two scientists who traveled halfway around the world. They traveled to ask a Hindu sage what he thought about their theories. When they arrived, he kindly brought them into his garden and he began to pour them some tea. And then he kept pouring them some tea and the cups that they had for tea began to overflow and yet he kept pouring. And the scientists started to feel a little bit awkward and politely said, Your Holiness, the cups can hold no more. The sage stopped pouring and said, Your minds are like these cups. You know too much. Empty your minds and come back. Then we'll talk. Well, I wonder if that applies to us at some level as we approach our text today. It contains elements that many of us are familiar with, maybe most of us. We've heard about the need to be born again. We've heard John 3.16 so many times that many of us can recite it in our sleep. And in that sense, perhaps we're a little bit like those scientists. We know too much. And in fact, our culture, more broadly, is incredibly familiar with these concepts as well. Books, tracts, sermons, columns, bumper stickers have all implored folks to be born again, so much so that you're now just as likely to see a bumper sticker that says, born okay the first time. Thanks. (laughs) Anyone seen that? No? Maybe not in Holland, right? I don't know. I have to say, if you travel outside of Holland, you might see that sticker. And John 3.16, a familiar text. You've likely seen this verse at some point in your life on a billboard along the side of the highway or maybe on a sign at a sporting event or certainly perhaps on the radio. And so our culture as well seems to be at a certain level very familiar, maybe even overly familiar with both of these things. And both John 3.16 and the idea of being born again inevitably remind us of a certain style of faith, a certain brand of Christianity, a Bible-thumping, evangelical, Billy Graham, in-or-out-heaven-or-hell kind of faith. And while that faith may hold a certain nostalgia for some of us, perhaps others of us are ready to put a little distance between ourselves and that expression of faith. So given that, is it time to retire? John 3.16. 
Is it time to let go of the idea of being born again? Have these two things been so overused and co-opted that even the mention of them causes more harm than good? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I will say that in giving this text another look, I think that there is some richness for us to rediscover if we heed the sage's advice and are willing to empty our minds a bit of what we think we already know. Now, it might first be worth asking, why did the concept of being born again, along with the text of John 3.16, become so popular and so prevalent to begin with? There's got to be something really good there to have uh, drawn people to these as they have. Well, John 3.16, in short form, seems to highlight the centrality of the Christian faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. There it is, right? The whole thing in a nutshell. And yet the use of this text generally comes with a lot of assumptions. A lot of assumptions and a lot of theological underpinnings underneath it. The main one being Christianity and our version of it represents the only valid religious or spiritual path. And if you don't get on board, there'll be hell to pay, literally. And how do you get on board? Well, you get born again. You have a conversion experience at the end of which you articulate our version of faith and become one of us. And so in that sense, these two things, John 3.16 and the idea of being born again, operate in tandem as a sort of gatekeeper that either gives one access to God, if you agree with it and get on board with our understanding of it, or denies you access to God if you don't. But the irony is that these two things come in the context of Jesus meeting with a religious gatekeeper where Jesus notes that the activity of the Spirit of God is like the wind. It cannot be controlled, manipulated, or squelched, not by gatekeepers, nor by anyone else. And that, I believe, is good news. So let's explore the story a bit. And we must note at the outset that this text has a lot of layers. And that shouldn't be too surprising because it comes in the Gospel of John, a very multi-layered text itself. It's worth noting that the Gospel of John was the last of the four canonical Gospels to be written. And you might say, well, what difference does that make when it was written? Well, it matters because certain things were happening in history in the first century that have an impact on things that were being written at that time. And so the Gospel of John was written after a major split between the early community of Jesus' followers and the traditional Jewish community. And some scholars, uh, many scholars, point to this happening around 88 of the Common Era, or nearly 60 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And John's Gospel is written at least 10, maybe even more years after that. And so it reflects that reality that division, that tension, and those historical realities sometimes are seen to bleed through the text as we read it. 
the Johannine community, as the community around this Gospel of John is often called, is largely at odds with at least portions of the Jewish or the synagogue-based community. And so when we see verse 1 say to us, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Judeans, a leader of the Jews who visits Jesus, and knowing the backdrop for the context of this gospel, we can begin to see that Nicodemus, at least in part, is a stand-in for the broader Jewish religious community and their leadership. Does that make sense? And that Jesus, at least in part, is a stand-in for the broader community of Jesus' followers. In fact, New Testament scholar Sandra Schneider says, well, who then is Nicodemus? She says, it's beside the point to inquire whether Nicodemus was a real person with whom the historical Jesus had a conversation. She says, we'll never know the answer to that question. Our concern is with the textual Nicodemus, who is a type or representative figure in John's Gospel. And maybe that's going a little farther than some of us are comfortable with, but it's worth noting that these things are a part of the conversation in the scholarship community as we approach these texts. And so in light of all of that, before Nicodemus can even open his mouth in our text, the original readers of John's Gospel will likely distrust him quite a bit. He represents the religious establishment that has rejected them. And then verse 2 adds this little detail. He came by night. He came by night. Why might it add that he came by night? Why might it point out that little detail? Didn't want to be seen, so kind of came in secret. It establishes that he's doing this on his own as like an official mission. Okay, it's kind of covert, perhaps. Yeah, he's he's maybe yeah, he's taking a step out and doesn't want to be seen publicly with Jesus, so he comes at night. I think those things are very well possible. And again, since there's a number of layers, it could hint at other things, like perhaps that he is literally in the dark unable to see and grasp what it is that Jesus is talking about. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Well, that seems like a good start. He's addressing Jesus as Rabbi, and in John's Gospel we see that the first disciples address Jesus as Rabbi. So perhaps he's coming as a prospective disciple himself. And notice that he's speaking in the plural. He says, we know. There again, a hint, a reminder that Nicodemus is a representative figure speaking for more than himself. He says, we know that you come from God because of these signs you do. Well, if we were to backtrack a little in the text to the very end of chapter 2, right before our chapter in chapter 3, we would read that Jesus had just been in Jerusalem for the Passover and that a number of people believed in him because of the signs that he performed. And then it adds, Jesus did not trust these people who believed in him because of the signs he did. And yet this is exactly what Nicodemus is saying. And so this chapter begins with a lot of distrust on both sides. Jesus responds in verse 3 with a classic line. I can tell you, no one, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anew, or as we often have heard it, born again. 
And being born again is a phrase, as we've noted, that's often associated with a certain brand of Christianity, the kind that also enjoys holding up John 3.16 signs at Yankee games. I would just hold up a go-home Yankees sign. You know, that's, as a, I guess, as a Tiger fan, maybe. Um, and born again in that context uh, of a certain brand of Christianity means having a religious conversion to a certain kind of Christian faith, generally the kind that sees itself as holding exclusive truth and the only kind that can get you to heaven. Now, in defense of that, Jesus does say, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So perhaps Jesus agrees with this view. Well, I hate to burst that bubble, but I don't think he does. Because kingdom of God, as we find it in the text, should not be conflated with heaven, at least not the kind that is a disembodied spiritual destination in the clouds for people after they die. That is not what is meant by kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven when we see Jesus using it in the Gospels. Rather, it means the place where God reigns or where the way of God reigns. The kingdom of God is something that unfolds here and now in tangible ways where we find compassion or forgiveness or care for stranger and enemy and for the least of these kingdom of God is also something Jesus says that is within something that's operating within one's own life within one's own spirit and so it is explicitly not referring to some ethereal place one goes after death and to experience this kingdom Jesus notes that one must be born anew or born from above the Greek word there anothen can mean both so again a couple of levels of things happening here. So how do we rescue this term born again? Can we rescue it? Well, it's helpful to remember that to be born anew, the concept of being born anew or experiencing rebirth is a spiritual concept that has a long heritage that certainly goes back before evangelical Christianity and even back before Jesus himself. Jack Kornfield quotes the Buddha who existed hundreds of years before Jesus as saying that each morning we are born again. What we do today is what matters most. And the Finnish poet Anselm Holo translates the 4th century Greek Paladas as similarly saying, each morning we're born again. Of yesterday nothing remains, what's left began today. But there's something beautiful about the simplicity of that, right? That at its most basic level, every day we're given a chance to start anew. I was sharing with a spiritual mentor of mine about a recent frustrating morning I had with our kids. We had to, well, we have to, uh, on a school day, leave our house shortly after 7 a.m., And I am not a morning person, and so that's a difficult time for me that I experience daily. (laughs) And on this particular morning, the kids were fighting in the back of the car. I was a little bit tired, a little bit cranky. My coffee had not kicked in yet. And I was a little bit sharp with the kids, and I kind of dropped them off in a bit of a huff. 
And as I drove home, I felt like a complete failure as a parent. And so I was relaying this to my friend, and he said, don't worry, you'll get another chance soon. <laughs> and it turns out he's right. It turns out he's right. And so on one level, we might see the idea of being born again, as, or being born anew, as simply the chance to start fresh. Simply the chance to start fresh, seeking to be fully open to each day, whatever it brings, and seeking to be as open-hearted and open-handed as we can. And yet at a deeper level, it seems Jesus is speaking about a profound spiritual experience, one in which we experience the life and the Spirit of God so deeply that it's almost as if we are a new person. And maybe you've had such an experience. It can happen in the middle, in the midst of a major life experience, perhaps on a trip that you're taking somewhere, or in the wake of a tragedy, or in some other major life transition. The Buddhist teacher Sangharakshita taught that one must experience spiritual death and then spiritual rebirth. And we hear in that echoes of Jesus who said, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross. And whoever wants to gain their life must lose it. And what this Buddhist teacher notes is that what results after the spiritual death and spiritual rebirth is a new you, a being based not on selfishness, but on compassion and wisdom. And that new being in Buddhism is sometimes referred to as a bodhisattva, a bodhisattva that is one driven not by the ego, but by compassion for all beings, one who has an awakened mind. And so Jesus says, you must be born anew. Perhaps if we pour out enough tea from the cups of our mind, we can begin to hear that phrase in a new way. Nicodemus responds, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can you enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus replies, no one can enter or experience the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Being born of water is a likely reference to human birth, which happens out of the waters of the womb. And in the Jewish context in which Nicodemus stands and represents, this initial birth is what made you win. Simply by being born as a Jew, you were in the community. And as a keeper of that tradition, Nicodemus represented a gatekeeper who would ensure that one was not only born a Jew, but continued as a good Jew who kept the law and offered the sacrifices and practiced the tradition accordingly. But Jesus notes that to be born anew requires both this initial human birth, of course, and a birth from above or a birth by the Spirit. And just as an aside, I love that this hints at some feminine imagery for God. The idea that we are born of God has to have the corollary that God, in some sense, is our mother. A beautiful picture. And this birth by the Spirit opens the door wide to anyone, regardless of one's ethnic or religious tradition or anything else. Anyone who opens up to the Spirit of God 
And Jesus says, the Spirit of God cannot be pinned down. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The movement of the Spirit is not confined by any one tradition or expression of faith. It cannot be controlled by gatekeepers or doctrines or dogmatists. Jesus is releasing the spiritual experience from the shackles of institutional control. If you've experienced people telling you that your faith doesn't look right, this is good news. If someone has said to you, be careful because you're heading down the wrong path, this is good news. If you felt shamed by family or friends because your experience of God doesn't match up with theirs, this is good news. And I might be going out on a limb here, but if you're worried about friends who are of a different religion, perhaps they're Jewish or Hindu or Muslim or even atheist or agnostic, I believe this is good news for them as well. The spirit cannot be pinned down by any religious gatekeepers or any one religious tradition. The wind blows where it chooses. And so it is with anyone who is born of the spirit. Now, as a Christian, I experience the Spirit most powerfully in the person of Jesus. I see in Jesus life and love and an expression of humanity that is deeply connected to and in tune with the divine. And so in that light, I want to reclaim John 3.16. For God so loved the world that she gave her only Son so that everyone who believes Him may not perish but have eternal life. We perish when we create small religious boxes. We perish when we demarcate who is in and who is out. We perish while claiming to speak for God, but in fact lack compassion and welcome. And we experience eternal life or full life, or as some have translated this, the life of the ages, when we open to the wind of the Spirit as Jesus invites us to. Sometimes we hear eternal life and we think that must be something later down the line after this life ends. And yet Joseph Campbell puts it this way. Eternity is a dimension of here and now. Here and now. The divine lives within you. Live from this center. If you hear this text, John 3.16, used to condemn, cast out, and judge... Don't forget to remind folks of verse 17, the very next verse. Indeed, God did not send the world, send the Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we have a world that needs saving today, friends, not from fire and brimstone, but from judgment, from exclusion, from hostility, from not carrying on Jesus' work of loving our enemies, of releasing the oppressed, of setting the captives free. But can God's love be so wide? Can we open ourselves to a wideness of the Spirit that stretches us beyond the comfortable boundaries 
we might like to construct. We might find ourselves asking with Nicodemus, how can these things be? Those are his final words in this encounter. His cup, like ours, is perhaps already too full with what he thinks he knows. But by the movement of the Spirit, we may also find ourselves returning again and again to Jesus, as Nicodemus does. He appears later in John's Gospel in chapter 7, defending Jesus against fellow Pharisees. And then we see him making an appearance at the end, at the cross, helping Joseph of Arimathea take down the body and give it proper burial. And I love that. That this isn't the end of the story for Nicodemus or for what he represents. I find this a beautiful and a hopeful picture. The Spirit of God moving out beyond the control of the gatekeepers, even as it works to invite them in. May it be so, even with us. Amen. And namaste.
Thank you to Marissa, Bethany, and Corey for your delightful musical leadership today. We really appreciate it. And now as you go from this place, and you know that the world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. And so may you have the courage to sing your song. Remember that the world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. And so may you have the courage to use your gifts. As you go, may the light of God shine upon you and within you and through you. Amen. And go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.